Hey, this is John Willis again. Um, it's the Deming Profound podcast. Um, I've got a good friend, old friend now. We've known each other, <laughs> uh, Mr. Gene Kim. Hey, Gene, you want to say hi to everybody? John, good, uh, good seeing you again, and uh, happy 2022 to you. <laughs> it's yeah, been yeah. Uh, 12 years since we Isn't first that crazy. Met. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I, I always like to think about like we. We were at um, the, the DevOps days at LinkedIn. It was the first DevOps days in the U.S. And we were both on a panel together. I think I got stuffed in there at the last minute. I think Patrick DeBar was the moderator. I like <laughs> This is my sort of version. I think it's accurate. And I, I remember you giving me some kind of compliment. And, and then when <laughs> I got off the stage, I was, you know, Damon Edwards comes right up to you. You know who that was on the panel? Like, I you know. And I and I do remember sort of having that dialogue with you in emails, but but back then Damon was running, doing all the legwork. You know, right. I get all the credit. Damon's the brains that. of the operation. Yeah, he, he was the one who invited you. And and um, you know, and then um he said that was you know Gene Kim. I'm like, oh, the visible ops guy. And I think I went looking for you and I was like, oh, he's gone. And then we met at South by Southwest, and you know, we started you know this 12-year sort of journey of like Lots of fun. So, right. you were one of the uh, early reviewers of the Phoenix Project. Uh, we were co-authors together on the uh, DevOps Handbook, and uh, we did the Beyond the Phoenix Project together. Uh, you were one of the original members of the program committee for the DevOps Enterprise Summit. I mean, like, uh, how many adventures have we been on? John? Yeah, no, it's not it's over great. yet. It's been, yeah, it's definitely not over. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> fun. It's fun, good stuff. And uh, you know, we I did a safety you... panel with uh, oh, Doctor yes. Cook, Doctor uh, Spear, and. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean, Dr. Decker. you know, I, I that whole idea of like getting, you know, because remember, that was something I was it was just driving me. Um, it was just gnawing at me that these two bodies of work who I so respected. I mean, like, you know, you turned me on to Mike Rother. You turned me on to see you, you literally would say, hey, John, read this book. And I'd read it, read this book. And, you know, I read Rother and then I read High Velocity Edge. And um, and like, like, oh, my God, it's like same thing as, you know, I always thank you for. I, you know, I, I don't know if you remember this, you know, before you would give me an early, early copy of, it wasn't even called the Phoenix project. You suggested I read this book by this guy called Elliot Gorat. <laughs> and that was such a gift because I think, you know, if I would have read him in, in the different order, I wouldn't have really got it. You know, so I, I read the goal and then I read critical change. I like, I read a whole bunch of his books because I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> this guy, it's like, he gets me. Right, in fact, and, I felt so sorry uh, that I actually, that was sort of the condition, but I mean, I felt like, uh, you know, to, the goal was such an important book that, you know, um, I felt like you should read that first, right? So that you could make an um, honest and objective measurement of like, does, does this book kind of, um, uh, you know, adequately, is it an adequate homage to the book, right? Or is it like, you know, Gene's crap. To me, that was such a gift because I just mm-hmm. wouldn't have understood it the way you know, I did like the the sort of impact of what you try. And then we, we did Beyond the Goal. And then, you know, that was part of a, like, a, there was a, a deeper explanation of like what you tried to do there in 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 the Phoenix Project from the goal. Right. Along with the fellow co-authors, George Spafford, Kevin Baer. Yeah, yeah, that's totally <laughs> and um, but but I do, um, you know, as we, we sort of had those early conversations and I, and I remember, you know, talking about the DevOps movement and then, you know, and then you told me about, the Phoenix project, we had discussions about that. And then, then you were, um, I think you had already started talking to Patrick about sort of doing this sort of cookbook idea. Cause the thing that like stood out is like, people are going to read the Phoenix project and they're going to like, okay, what do I do next? So we started a, you know, a multi, multi-year um, <laughs> discovery. And I, I remember like, you know, some of the um, mind maps that we were building back in the day. Right. Like just, we spent many years just like really walking through, you know, sort of an yeah. education for all of us. I think it was four, maybe even five years before the DevOps handbook came out. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. No, no. And we had Mike Orzen. Remember Mike Orzen was involved? Uh, in that's right. So, yeah. So, um, no, I, I think that, you know, uh, the, the, a couple more sort of history, you know, the, uh, you know, history, um, nostalgia which was um you know the, the you talked about starting the devops enterprise summit right and one of the things i loved about the original i think there was a small group of us who understood that these ideas of devops were universal i don't think i understood the 
the roots of it going for lean and operations management at that point. But but we did understand that this is like um, this, these are universal ideas. And um, but there was this larger group of people that were sort of saying, you know, well, you know, that's kid stuff. There's you're not going to be able to do it in the enterprise. And I remember I don't know if you remember Damon would get in into these like week long Twitter battles with mm-hmm. with people from the big four, big five. Right. And and to me, the sort of the, the moment I knew that like like the ideals that we were talking about were going to work without having to sort of change them or dilute them was when we saw those first CFP responses, mm-hmm. you know, we saw target, we saw, uh, you know, uh, Apple one uh, nationwide insurance um, right. blackboard, right. I mean, all these uh, organizations have been around for decades or centuries. Oh, uh, citizen, uh, the uh, Mark Schwartz from us citizenship right. and immigration right. services yeah. inside of DHS. Right. I yeah, think yeah. The, uh, you know, that first year, I think it was just an uh, incredible proof point, right? That, uh, you know, these are relevant to every industry vertical, <laughs> you know, regardless of how old the organization is. Um, and but just a little uh, uh, kind of funny point, right? I mean, I think the oldest organization that presented was uh, UK HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue Collection Service, uh-huh. which yeah, was yeah. Uh, uh, their version of the IRS, which was created in the year 1200, right? That's so, I mean, crazy, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, now... I think it was the second year, like you pinged me and said, well, because I think that was the thing. It was like, to me, it was pay dirt. Like, we're right. Like, and they, their, their proposal for presentations. And then when we ran the, the conference, it, it, it was non-compromising. They weren't doing what so some of the big consultants were saying that you're never going to be able to do this in a large bank. They were saying, no, we're, you know, it's hard and we're doing it, but it's hard, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Uh, but the next year, I remember seeing a proposal from like Western Union, and um, That's right, this, whatever that sort of the, the sort of the paint company that you find Sherwin Williams. Both, yeah. yeah both <laughs> right. saying, okay, now we really know <laughs> that this is for real. Right. Like, uh, so. Yeah. And, and to, to, to get to, you know, I think the, the core thing of whether it's, uh, you know, Deming, Goldratt, uh, you know, whatever comes next is that there are certain principles at play, right. That are universal. And, uh, you know, I think the objections, what they sounded like in the beginning was, oh, you had to be a web scale company, the hyperscale mm-hmm. uh, companies, um, and which, you know, on the surface, just, I, I think to us just seems absurd, right? It's yeah, like the yeah. technology value stream uh, actually um, exists regardless of, you know, whether you're uh, a hyperscaler or not. So, so yeah, I think uh, it, it was really cool. There's no better way to prove it than, you know, existence proofs. That's that's right, that's right. Right. Yeah, to have these companies. And now over the years, I mean, what what is the catalog now of how many companies enterprises have presented? Uh, I think at last count, it was about uh, so a thousand plus videos. Uh, you know, so I, I would just say about 800, 800 yeah, yeah. organizations. No, it's, uh, it, it's incredible. Um, you know, even... So I, I was telling you, I, I went and, um, you know, I, I wanted to catch up on some of your podcasts and I, I've been fascinated by this um, argument about just in time. Right? <laughs> this if people are pinging me and say, John, now what do you think about just as if like we've proven it doesn't work. Right. And, uh, and, you know, we're both huge fans as Dr. Spear. Right. And I just love the podcast where, you know, he, you know, he explained it to us all. Right. And, um, you know, and I just, uh, um, you know, and, and your references, like, I think there's it's just so much like you'll say, you know, you know, there was this presentation by Walmart back in, you know, and be able to sort of use all that, which we did in the DevOps handbook as well. Mm-hmm. Right. We were able to use all that material from all those sort of presentations. But the idea that there are just so many proof points now when you want to tell a story. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the the point that, uh, that podcast episode with uh, Dr. Steven Spear was about was uh, to re- rebut the narrative that companies are in trouble because of the lean supply chains. <laughs> and I think the yeah. argument that uh, uh, Dr. Spear was very forcefully arguing was that, no, no, <laughs> it's actually um, we are in as good as shape as we are in you know unprecedented times because of well-managed supply chains. And uh, it was just uh, one of the things that uh, – you know, to substantiate this claim, I went to the uh, FRED site, so that's the Federal Reserve um, Economic Data Site uh, run by the um, the St. Louis branch. And it's just pretty incredible. So I calculated the inventory sales ratios going back almost 100 years. 
And I mean, it's just so, you know, you can imagine a line um, that's like basically kind of going up and then it dips like, you know, so visibly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was around 1982, uh, which is, so that was kind of, so I divided the data points into two populations. One is before 1982 and why 1982 is because uh, typically economists will divide up things at the end of a recession. Okay. And so 1982 is when uh, they marked the end of the, that particular recession uh, and then afterwards. And the inventory to sales ratio uh, post-1982 is one third of that from before. And so arguably, right, uh, this means that, you know, the uh, businesses and, um, you know, anyone who's carrying inventory has freed up two thirds of, you know, capital to deploy it to more useful things, right? Yeah. So, uh, so and, and as opposed to it being tied up in inventory. So I, I think... Uh, that's just incredible evidence um, yeah. that suggests you know, the, the the huge value and the ways that society has changed just by better management supply chains. Yeah, no question. I mean, again, you guys talk about like I I, I love this sort of Stephen Sears says. You know, when you next time you pick up tomato, like try to understand the like how that got that to, that beautiful tomato that you're cutting up for like a sandwich or in your meal, how it got to you, um, you know, through incredible complexity of um, other things i you know the one thing I, I i thought about when i was listening to that like you know i've got deming on the brain at all times <laughs> and but you know like 1982 is you know like 1980 was the beginning of quote-unquote deming mania in the united mm-hmm. states there was the nbc documentary um and in 82 out of a crisis was published it just seems like um more than a coincidence but possibly a coincidence that um a lot of the ideas Behind, you know, sort of Deming's thoughts about um, suppliers, you know, toward the supply chain concepts or, you know, um, and and just, uh, you know, so not just variation. Uh, we talked a little about variation I have, in, in one of the last podcasts we did on, on DealCast. Um, I have some more thoughts there. But, um, but like, it just seems interesting, coincidental, that like we have this amazing growth in um, just very sort of sophisticated pl- supply chain. Um, and the economics related yeah. to uh, these models of delivery. Yeah. And so we we're talking beforehand about like, why does 1982 come up so often? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think maybe part of it might be coincidental, right? I mean, uh, uh, you know, the publication, um, uh, but I think the reason that we're talking about is that, yeah, uh, uh, that period was the darkest period of the economy before uh, the recovery. And so when do people need help the most? Who needs help when things are going well? Nobody. <laughs> right? Who needs help you know, when uh, basically every, uh, when you're sailing against the wind um, yeah. and every factor you know, in the economy. And, and so I think, you know, that is probably what contributes to 1982 showing up so often, right. you know, in well, terms of uh, as a division yeah. between he- before and after. Yeah, and I guess the other thing, you know, a lot of times when we we think about software companies, we always look for these inflection points, right? Like, which is, what is a point at which somebody might be, you know, like going and telling somebody to change when everything's normal is like a very hard sell. (laughs) But when they're all sort of pulling their hair out and saying, you know, like, you know, everything's broken, you kind of swoop in with a new idea. And so, you know, that part of that coincidence might be some of those new ideas, you know, at this amazing inflection point of like what we've been doing like it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. You got to do something new. Um, what are your thoughts? I ask most guests this. So, like, what what would you say? You know, why is Dr. Deming important in our conversation here in 2022? Yeah. In fact, I was uh, trying to find my book on uh, one of my favorite books that I read uh, in as we were researching uh, the Phoenix Project. Oh my gosh! I just pulled up the Amazon uh, page. Last purchase on August fourth, two thousand four. It was a book called Deming and Goldrat. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, the, yes, yeah, okay, right. Um, and it's a basically it was. I just loved the book because it was so understandable. Essentially, it was uh, the author uh, Domenico Lapore. Lapore, yeah, just, I, I, I've got him cued. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's okay. a great book, yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. it just did a. I just thought a phenomenal job in saying, you know, um, those core concepts and principles about what you need to manage well. And, you know, I think there's kind of classically three um, uh, people who are credited for the manufacturing revolution. You know, one is certainly 
Dr. Deming. In fact, you know, Dr. Goldratt wrote uh, endlessly about how he was standing on the shoulder of giants. Right, right. <laughs> and Dr. Right, Deming is yeah, not the one to, um, you know, uh, yeah, it was the fact, I mean, it was such a. Uh, yeah, Goldratt would not, like, it, it'd have to be, like, really, really true. Exactly. He doesn't give those out. That kind of credit. (laughs) Exactly. Right. (laughs) Um, And and so Dr. Goldratt, I would certainly consider another one of those. And then the lean movement. And I think between those three, I mean, um, I I think Six Sigma goes in there somewhere, right? Uh, Between those four, certainly, you know, that was the majority of the market share of uh, people who said there's got to be a better way to run things. And uh, so I, I think if you were to paint the genealogy, as you said, so uh, wonderfully throughout your uh, podcast episodes, uh, which I've so much enjoyed. <laughs> the, uh, the one on uh, the autonomous driving one was just uh, mind-blowing yeah, to me. Crazy. That was uh, amazing. Uh, but that, um, uh, you know, I, th- I think all of them would credit Dr. Deming as being the person who really plants the seeds, the core ideas that uh, everyone tried to improve upon. Yeah, yeah. No, I think um, you know the, the the conclusion out of all the research I've done on Deming now is, um, you know, like one of the things that you hear often. He's the guy that changed Japan. He's the one that created the miracle in Japan. Japan changed Japan. Japan created mm-hmm. the miracle in Japan. Yeah, he was a conduit. He basically helped a lot of sort of influence in that economy that needed help change the way they thought, but. But, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I think early on, I would say things like, you know, sort of Deming did this and we wouldn't happen like because Deming, you know, Deming, like anybody else, was just um, an incredible influencer of like really grounded ideas, you know, like yeah. you know, Dr. Schuwitz works, this is process control, um, you know, just um, all that. Yeah. In fact, one of my favorite books is called uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolution by Dr. Thomas Kuhn. And basically the the punchline is uh, whenever there's a true revolution, um, whether it's Copernican to Newtonian, Newtonian to Einsteinian, Mm -hmm. uh, in each one of those cases, uh, there are many, many people working on that problem, sometimes in cooperation, sometimes in competition. Uh, But then uh, I love this image that he paints in the book is that, and then something happens. Um, he called it like almost like sublimation when gas turns into a solid, it, uh, it is instant. <laughs> and then one person gets the credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, uh, Deming is that person, right? Yeah, that, uh, no, the he, idea is crystallized around him. Yeah, no, I, I think you, um, you know, you, you, yeah. So, you know, again, if you think about, you know, the, there's sort of Eikhoff, there's Duran, there's all these like incredible people and there's ones I, I'm even listing, but he does seem to get, the credit, but then, you know, the, the, like some people are an inflection point. I mean, even like Amazon's cloud, like, you know, like I, you know, me being in this industry for so many years, I, you know, I'd hear the old timers saying, we were doing a cloud back in the nineties and I don't, you know, what's new, you know, like it's new, buddy. <laughs> like I was doing your version of a cloud in the nineties, right? but like in 2006, when Amazon created this API infrastructure that where you could start off a hundred compute instances, by hitting a button, you know, hitting a command line, that yep. was a little different than, you know, in so fact, Amazon you gets the, word, the credit, right? Like, absolutely. And you use the word inflection point. And that uh, term uh, often gets credit to Dr. Andy Grove, uh, former CEO of Intel, but that term actually came from um, uh, Dr. Thomas Kuhn. <laughs> and so, oh, okay. yeah, okay. to yeah. your example, right, uh, the inflection point of AWS EC2, right, everyone got it. <laughs> right? yeah. It's like, oh, it's uh, well, not everybody got it, but the the people who mattered got it, <laughs> right? And that was the first sort of like, uh, um, you know, there was pre-EC2 <laughs> and there were probably others like EC2, but EC2 is the one that, you know, uh, helped kick off the cloud movement uh, yeah. would be, I think, one narrative. So um, so tell what can you tell us about this book, Dr. Fear? Like, I'm sure everybody's like, oh man, what's this going to be all about? Oh, <laughs> yeah. You've had this yeah, so, crazy fascination with Spear. Like, I, you know, I remember when writing the handbook, I felt like we had to pull the end on court on you periodically yeah, on, on Spear stories. Like, Gene, you've had like, you've met, yeah. you, you met your quota here. Like, no more Spear stories. Like, just one more. But yeah. Right. In fact, I mean, just to fully explain the story. So I took a workshop from him. Uh, it was a two-day workshop that he was giving at MIT Sloan. And uh, you know, speaking about before and after, right? Uh, in my mind, it was like before the Spear yeah. workshop and then after. And I remember coming back and um, uh, yeah, and that that's when 
uh, like a whole bunch of things suddenly became uh, apparent to me. Right. And, uh, yeah, and so one of the key teachings that uh, he had was like what he called at the time, um, let's call the three S's or four S's, right? See, solve, swarm, um, and share. And it, uh, I, I remember, uh, I, th- I think it was in one of our calls with you. It was like, oh, share. Like, oh, we, we were totally missing share, shared platforms, shared code bases, shared, yeah, <laughs> shared yeah, repos. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, dojos, you know, all of those things are right, a right. way to spread greatness. Um, and, and I think that's what resulted in uh, basically all the changes I started making, uh, you know, Dr. Spear this, Dr. Spear that. And uh, at a certain point, I, mean, I think he got really frustrated because uh, uh, Dr. Spear, the words Dr. Spear can't be half the book. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we did have to sort of dial it back. <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, yeah, I, I think ever since then, so that was eight years ago, um, uh, certainly after the, you know, sometime in the last three years, uh, I've become endlessly fascinated and maybe obsessed with uh, trying to understand why and how S- Steven Spears sees, sees the world. And you know, I think to cast, <laughs> in fact, the whole ideal cast is in service to try to understand that goal, which is why, how, why, how and why do organizations work the way they do, both in the ideal and not ideal. Mm-hmm. And to be able to explain it and ideally predict it, you know, right. um, using the most parsimonious um, principles as possible. Um, So, uh, and that notion of the principles of parsimony, I I just love because um, say the goal of science is explain the most amount of observable phenomenon with the fewest number of principles, confirm deeply held intuitions and reveal surprising insights. (laughs) And um, I think the, uh, I think what we're working towards is, you know, to be able to say, Hey, um, how and why organization work can actually be very simple. It's uh, a function of primarily structure. Uh, so that could be like the org chart. Uh, so the way we structure our teams. And then in this, and certainly in the software space, it also includes the architecture we work within. Uh, so Conway's law, right? Saying the structure should be isomorphic to uh, the architecture, right? And all sorts of bad things happen uh, if they're not congruent. And then, you know, the dynamics and the outcomes are you know, almost entirely a function of that and so even culture uh, we would say is a uh is a dynamic um so we can create a culture where uh weak signals are amplified you know reinforced by the top uh so that's weak signals of failure can be averted uh or we can create a system where uh you know everyone's afraid to tell bad news so weak signals of failure are uh, suppressed or maybe even extinguished entirely and so uh think about um uh, maybe most recently, the 737 Max issue of Boeing, right? What is it yeah. that happened where so many people inside of Boeing said, you know, we could see this coming, right? And yet, uh, you know, uh, it resulted in, you know, um, uh, failures that killed hundreds of people. So, um, and so most recently, we've been working on what are the specific characteristics of structure that must exist uh, to be high performing? Um, yeah. You know, it has to be simple, meaning modular, right. um, uh which ties in his earliest work, um, Dr. Spears' work um, in 1999, the most widely downloaded Harvard Business Review of article of all time, decoding the DNA of the production system. That's all about simplicity and architecture. The okay. second is uh, standardization. So this means that there has to be a strong declaration of how things should work. Um, so, you know, we can think about uh, standardized work. We can think about Netflix chaos monkey, right? And the Simian army, all of them declare how things should be working, which gets to uh, the third a characteristic, which is uh, um, standardization, simplicity, s- simple, standard, uh, synchronized, uh, oh, stabilized. Yeah, right. Stabilized. So uh, stabilized means that uh, when something goes wrong, it creates, it can be fixed locally <laughs> without blowing mm-hmm. up to become a global issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so think and on cord. And then right, uh, right. fifth is uh, synchronized, meaning, you know, things are the, the, uh, thinking is happening at the edges, not at the center, right? Uh, which simply cannot keep up. And so, uh, you know, we've come up with, uh, we've kind of projected those four characteristics into, you know, for example, chaos monkey versus a tightly coupled monolithic architecture, right? Why, you know, why um, the first has all four characteristics, why the um, the second has none, uh, whether it's um, CICD, CICD pipeline versus, you know, um, infrequent deployments, right? Yeah, Showing yeah. one has all 
one has none. Uh, Toyota versus uh, General Motors, right? Why Toyota has all four, General Motors has none, or back in the 1980s. Uh, team of Teams in the beginning, why it had none, right? But by the end, it had all of them. So it's been incredibly satisfying, you know, to be able to, um, uh, I feel like what we're doing is creating something that has a lot of explanatory power. It can no, explain I, I, why high I performance is why. No, I, I, you know, again, like in that podcast, you, you, you covered a lot of that. And then, you know, if I go back to like that, we were talking about that panel we did with uh, Dr. Spear, uh, Richard Cook and uh, Sidney Decker, right. Um, two and a half hours, if you're willing to sort of endure <laughs> geekism, but <laughs> That was that my frustration is that I kept hearing these voices of sort of Rother and the biggest tragedies. We couldn't get Rother to be there, but, but um, you know, it should have been Rother and Spear on one side of the table and Dr. Cook and, uh, and, and Sidney Decker on the other. And, and, you know, I, I'd come to you and I said, you know, like it's, it really is, you know, frustrating to me that I can see that they're both telling the same story, but they can't see that they're telling <laughs> right and, and um you know and i think that you know when we when we you know if you ever get if people get a chance to watch that the um you know uh you know me and you someday will do the mystery science theater 2000 <laughs> <laughs> but like in the beginning there there's sort of like you know sort of uh you know animals in the safari in africa you know sort of you know their horns are touching <laughs> but they're not you know and then somewhere they they start like having these sort of glorious agreements and but then you know I get the sense that like that was just a point in time and now <laughs> I don't see um, them collaborating. But you, if you read High Velocity Edge and then you sort of you um, you sort of read something by Decker, you, you like like if you're not deeply in one of those tribes, <laughs> like you see the commonality of what they're saying. Yeah, and I think that is what's so exciting to me, and I and I really want to thank you for. You, know, you pointed this out so early on, and here's how I would describe it now: is that, you know, whether you're talking about system dynamics or learning organizations or you know psychological safety or uh, lean or you know architecture modularity uh, or culture, <laughs> uh, I think all of them are incomplete expressions of a greater whole, <laughs> right? And uh, you know, I would say, and this sounds maybe a little bit um, uh, uh, overly grand, but I mean, I think. I kind of view this work with Dr. Spear is uh, trying to come up with uh, towards a theory of organizations um, and uh, you know, without um, you know, acknowledging that all, you know, some, all of those are deep um, centers of expertise and knowledge and a corpus in and of itself. Right. But uh, there's gotta be, wouldn't it be great, right. To be able to sort of, uh, as you noticed um, and you're, as what you suspected before we put together that panel, right. Is that, you know, uh, they, they are, they're not totally disparate, right? With the Venn diagram, they, they, they have a lot in common. And well, yeah, I, think I mean, you know, like, like they, they're like lockstep on a lot of things. You know, yeah. I mean, when you talk about the sort of the, the resilience and safety, you know, how they think about like in, in your case, you know, the, the edge, you know, you know, you know, making sure that like, so, you know, the, the, the sort of dominant like um, control structures, you know, kill people, you know what I yeah. mean? You know, where, uh, whereas, you know, so that, you know, that whole idea of, um, you know, the, the sort of the Gemba idea, yeah. like, or the, 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 you know, sort of the, the learning at the, the edge Rocker talked about, right? <laughs> right. Um, you know, I mean, that's sort of deeply entwined in, in sort of Decker and Woods and Cook's writing. Yeah. yeah. In fact, to your point, I mean, this is a bit of an aha moment, right? I mean, the, the no whole notion of a Gemba, right. Is that you don't learn from a desk, you know, through status reports, you have to go to the shop floor, do go to the, you know, IDEs and so forth, right. To actually see how, uh, where work is being performed. And so that means in, in kind of the language here is that, you know, this is, uh, this is the learning happens at the edge, <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, this, uh, and it's not going to happen at the center, right? The center has to go to the edge. And, you know, for me, this may be one of the big uh, aha moments for me is that I think the classic example of low performance is that uh, the edge is working in slow mode and the center is working in fast mode. So fast mode means expediting, you know, handling, um, you know, escalations and so forth, right? Because the edge can't do what it needs. So it is stuck in slow mode where what you really want is the edge to be working in fast mode, okay. right? Yeah. In routines, uh, you know, in, in a state of flow, um, you know, they get the help when they need help, they get the help they need. Um, and that allows leadership to be truly in slow mode, a more slow 
uh, a slower, more deliberative, contemplative style, like General Stanley McChrystal, you know, when he inherited, uh, you know, the story in the team teams, right? Uh, when he asked, are we achieving the goals of dismantling the enemy terrorist networks in Iraq? And the answer was no. <laughs> and so he reconfigured the organization so that, you know, the end state, uh, they could go from, uh, you know, enemy uh, sighting by a 22-year-old drone operator to capture 45 minutes later, right? And that could not happen. Absolutely could not happen if you have to escalate up eight levels and then down eight, right, in order to uh, go from sighting to capture. There will be no capture. Right, that's right, that's right, that's right. Well, and you had mentioned, like, the Boeing um, 737 MAX, right? And, like, did anybody, right? You know, so Steve here has, like, these brilliant stories about, what is it, the um, the Challenger or, or the Columbia, like, I think it was Columbia, right, which is the thermal panel and, and how, like, you know, this sort of, like, no, it was a sort of anti-Gamba story. Like, you know, like we've seen that before. He's got a couple of great stories. I just did a whole, um, a deeper analysis on Night Capital, you know, and I, and, and I know that I'm going to get pounded by my good friend, John, and you know, <laughs> they're going to throw counterfactual at me. But I tried to say, like, this is a thought exercise, but, you know, the, the question, so not only was we know the story of, like, the, uh, an, a uh, sysadmin uh, deployed um, to seven servers in an eight-server cluster. There was some old code on the eight-server cluster. That old code was actually test code that did that literally did high-frequency, buy-high, sell-low transactions <laughs> 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 to validate the algorithms, right? But it got turned on in production at scale, right? Like you know, so <laughs> we, we won't sort of like they they lost what they they were like six billion and lost like liquidity. In like 40 minutes, they lost 500 million. They were sort of out of business. But I, I asked the question of all the things that sort of led up to that, right? It, you know, and and like the question I I, so I ask is, did anybody did anybody see this train wreck coming? Right? Did you know? I got into a long conversation with Dr. Cook one time about like you know where, where I said like, did anybody even ask if they were using Chef Puppet or Ansible? And not like, and he was like counterfactual, counterfactual, you know, <laughs> out of bounds, you know, like, if, you know, a penalty, right, a fifteen-yard penalty. But, but the point is, like, you know, I think in a lot of organizations, you know, we 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 set this trap to to you know, point about Boeing is that um, we don't enable a social structure to allow people to feel, you know, psychological safety to feel comfortable because when you look in these in a postmortem perspective. I believe it's unfair to sort of judge them. And that's the, that's sort of the resilience point is the counterfactual. You weren't there. You don't right. understand the decisions they had to make, but I do think it's fair to ask the question, you know, were there people involved in this? Yeah. Who really saw, saw, you know, like, Hey, you know, maybe will you order stop this? Right. And, and by the way, I, I do acknowledge the, the danger of counterfactuals. In fact, I, I wish I could remember this quote about like why uh, you know it's it's so dangerous. But I think what's interesting to me, I mean, I, I believe uh, here's how I would reword that. So Dr. Ron Westrom introduced me to the term uh, the technical maestro, uh, and I'm just gonna. Uh, change the language just slightly and call it a sure. socio-technical maestro. And, and he said it has basically five characteristics, uh, high energy, high standards, um, great in the large, also great in the small so that they know how to ask good questions and they love walking the floor. And when I heard that, I mean, it was jarring. <laughs> it was like, uh, yeah, I was like, can you say that again? And it just, for me, it has such incredible explanatory power for me it simultaneously explains you know those situations you know in our lives when things are going amazing fully supported by who's at the top and it also explains when things are going terribly fully enabled you know by who's at the top and so there was a, a kind of corollary to this uh, he said uh, it was uh, Rabinow's law number 23 uh, if you have a dope at the top you will have or soon will have dopes all the way down so <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think what's amazing is, you know, in, in these high-performing organizations of which, you know, uh, for this book, you know, that will hopefully come out in 2023, maybe 2024, right? Uh, we're saying, you know, in 150 years, whether it's agile, DevOps, you know, uh, you know, <coughs> uh, let's take a look at in 150 years of great organizations uh, decimating horrible organizations. So whether it's team of teams after versus before. Uh, the U.S. Navy in World War II versus the Japanese uh, Navy, the 
uh, U.S. Navy nuclear reactor program versus the Soviet Navy's, the Apollo space shuttle program versus the the Apollo space program versus the U.S. space shuttle program, uh, Toyota versus General Motors, <coughs> DevOps versus Waterfall, yeah. you know, Apple iPhone versus Nokia. Yeah, I, th- I think you know in general, right? In fact, I, I mean, I believe in each case, you there has to have been that socio-technical maestro. And, and the, the a great example that, I mean, this is a recent aha moment is, you know, uh, I think you and I have both read a lot of books about Admiral uh, Hyman Rickover, the, the father of the U.S. nuclear Navy. Right. I just read a book called From the Other Side of the Periscope, and it was written by a U.S. Navy submarine captain and uh, the Soviet captain counterpart. And it was oh, wow. the longest trail, I think that spanned 30 days of a U.S. sub trailing a, a uh, a Soviet Echo 2 class sub. Anyway, there was this one line that blew me away. It was apparently in the U.S. Navy, the NR program, the nuclear reactor program, has a chain of command that is outside of the standard chain of command. <laughs> so in order for a ship to sail, um, they have to get clearance from the USNR, which is led by a four-star admiral. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. you know, so here's a... A socio socio technical mechanism to make sure that you know you are uncompromising in terms of safety, and so I, th- I think the these maestros understand not just the technology side, but they understand the social structures, the social circuits that need to be there, you know, for us to get the right things, right? Which you know, I would hypothesize, <laughs> right? It was at, you know those mechanisms were absent at yeah. Boeing, right? So that these signals of these early warnings, right? could not get transmitted to the right place, you know, to make, to let the right things happen. Right. Probably night cap, yeah. night capital. Probably. I mean, night I, capital. Can you, yeah. capital classic example, which was, you know, so again, like I worry about sort of getting pounded by the whole counterfactual thing, but the, you know, they're about to launch the first um, sort of NYSE black box trading or, you know, basically it's called RLP system. Like the hmm. NSA just announced its ability to sort of run your code in one of the NYSEs. It, it was a big deal. So Knight Capital is basically, and it's one of those things where they had 30 days to implement it. But here's the thing. Um, and, and in fact, I'd like to get your opinion on this because somebody said, I'll tell you a story and then I'll, just, I'll tell you what somebody said to me. But um, the day of that launch, the CEO had overlapping knee surgery and was out of the office. All right. Uh, you know, and somebody said, well, why does the CEO need to, you know, be involved. Let's let's table that. The for whatever reason, the NYSC only had his contact information. Mm. So the NYSC is watching um, a, a, a level of trading. So there's already circuit break, breakers in place because of price swings, but there are no circuit breakers for insane trading. I figure mm. what the number increase was within the first hour on that day, and so their first response is to go to try to contact the CEO. And so there's a whole delay between that and getting to the CIO and, and you know, and some of those, are, why does the CEO need to know about this? I'm like, well, I mean, it's one of the biggest sort of trading changes that they've made, you know, in this RLP. And, um, but the, the I, I think the point is there was like, people couldn't make decisions. <laughs> there was all this, like if you go in, sort of read the details, there are a bunch of people, even sysadmins, that were monitoring the situation at Night Capital that might have been able to, you know, you know, uh, theologically pull the end on cord and say, hey, you know, um, you know, and I've even talked to other uh, high frequency trading guys, and they would say, yeah, no, no, we would have, we would have killed the routers, you know, we, we like, <laughs> you know, we would have seen this in about five, you know, and again, counterfactual, but they said yeah. if that happened like there's already a protocol to shut off the border routers. Right. And, yeah. and, but at night so that's, capital, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and, and let me just rephrase yeah, that. Sure, By the sure. way, I, I don't claim any expertise or knowledge about any of this. And so it sounds like uh, what you just said is that in a more typical high frequency trading firm, uh, everyone understands there's a risk of a runaway yeah, uh, right, program. Yeah. Right. And so uh, if anyone sees that, uh, anyone, uh, you know, if, if someone, if they decide that something really terrible is happening, they will disconnect the router, right? And at least uh, isolate. Uh, Wouldn't have know. to wait to get call a guy who's like sitting right. in his bed, uh, you know, medicated because. He needs <laughs> to do, right? right, right, right. Yeah, and, and I guess the my question would be: what aside from that, were there other weeks 
failure signals that um, that could have hinted at, you know, the the fact that there was a a vulnerability in the system. Yeah, and I think I mean again, uh, this is sort of a a counterfactual musical, if you will. But but yeah, I mean all the things that that again, I go back to like I, I think you know there, there had to be some people watching what was happening that was just you know me and you know we talked to lots of corporations when you <laughs> talk to people like yeah no i knew that wasn't gonna work <laughs> or yeah i could i tried to tell them right and you know and for some reason you're right these were weak signals that just didn't um you know like, like the question is like what is your sort of um what is your social technical construct yep yep and if it, it is where um you know we me and you have talked about the Paul O'Neill story, right? Yeah. <coughs> Which is a fantastic story, right? The the you know um the Paul O'Neill when he went into Akoa and you know and that, that whole sort of I you know that sort of reverse, you know, like he wanted to know every injury within 24 hours and it created this sort of reverse it, it created a communication model where people sort of learned. Yeah. I love this. And, and you know the, the essentially the way this is showing up in the um, Spear Kim book, uh, which is unnamed yet, yeah. is that you know the more consequential and the more irreversible the and unforgiving the production environment is, the more you have to focus on planning and preparation. So uh, this comes from Admiral John Richardson: plan, perform. I'm sorry, plan, prepare, perform. <laughs> so the okay. kind of three Ps, and and so to the night capital issue. Uh, and again, I don't claim any knowledge or expertise right. on this is that, but I mean, I think in any uh, unforgiving production environment, uh, whether it's um, a hostage rescue, a uh, high frequency trading operation, um, uh, you know, hospital patient care, hospital patient care, right. Uh, if you, uh, then the more unforgiving that is, the more you have to prepare. And before that uh, you have to plan. And so this is where you do the red teaming. This is where you do the drills. This is where you develop shorthands, uh, you know, um, and uh, routines between the teams. Um, and, and so I, I loved reading the uh, Gene Kranz book, "Failure Is Not an Option." Oh yes, you turned and, me on to that too. Yeah. Oh, so fun. I mean, you know, uh, so apparently, like in Apollo Eleven, in preparation for that, uh, I think there, were, in the simulations. The simulations were all about going through the checklist, right, and uh, seeing, you know, can we land on the moon? And I think they crashed. Then Neil Armstrong and team crashed ten times in a row, <laughs> and uh, they realized um, uh, they weren't giving enough discretion to the pilot, right? Yeah, and so yeah. uh, they changed the procedures so that uh, they had more discretion to actually choose landing site or something. And uh, yeah, they did their first landing. But that, that I think that's an example that uh, says. That you know, for the Apollo program, I mean, there was this incredible um, emphasis on drills, on understanding every anomaly, so a, fa a potential failure signal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was something called uh, there was this ritual that Gene Kranz put in place that at the end of each shift they had to resolve every funny. So funny was defined as any anomaly or something that didn't that deviated from the expectation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, by doing that, right, I mean they're chasing down every weak failure signal, um, yeah. and understanding that uh, either modifying the procedures or you know, adding some knowledge versus what happened arguably in both cases of the space shuttle program, the Columbian challenger, where essentially as Dr. Westrom said, that was essentially the same mistake that happened twice. There was uh, something happens. Um, it, uh, they investigate and say it happened before. So therefore it must be okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which leads to, you know, uh, a fury disaster. Yeah. That's the, those are the sort of worst sins are the ones where right. we've seen that before don't worry about it i mean that's why i think i have the whole um you know the and on cord um mythology not to sort of that what it is which was what rother said which is the first thing somebody would say to you when you pull the end on first off they wouldn't yeah. call you up and say why in the heck did you go ahead they wouldn't like be four offices away or four floors away and say why did you pull the end on cord you know and it, like they can't they went there like like they they yeah. went to the and then the first thing they said was thank you, right? Because you helped us sort of better understand, um, you know, whatever it is that you thought was, um, you know. And I think, um, you know, in in, um, in in the Gene Kranz, you know, the thing I love is really sort of the movie version, which is it's in his book, the <laughs> Apollo Thirteen, where 
literally they don't know what to do. And so the the process at that point is, you know, when Ed Harris says, not on my dime, and then the next thing he's playing Gene Kranz, right? And and like, what do they do? They don't set up a committee to figure out like what's the best place to buy tinfoil, what's the best place to buy, you know, they had to prototype the solution of the sort of what was it like um, you know, taking a CO2 out of the air or whatever, right? And like they just <laughs> all broke off and did what they did. And it was such a a, a difference the way you know, enterprises work, right? Where enterprises would be, um, yeah, we need to solve this like massive problem. Okay, let's form a committee to figure out, you know, what, let's ship, put an RFP out for <laughs> 10 suppliers for tinfoil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, let's put out like, uh, do a study on whether we should use coil or not, right? Whereas in the Gene Kranz sort of model, which was put a bunch of smart people together and like, we're not right. I love that it. scene in the movie. Uh, figure out how to replace this using only these parts. I just, uh, this came across Twitter um, literally uh, two, three days ago. The Krantz dictum that came out of after the Apollo 1 tragedy. He wrote this kind of famous memo. Uh, said, space flight will never tolerate carelessness, incapacity, or neglect. Somewhere, somehow, we screwed up. It could have been in design, build, or test, whatever it, whatever it was, we should have caught it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This goes on for about five more paragraphs, but essentially, oh, it says, from this day forward, flight control will be known by two words, tough and competent. Tough means we are forever accountable for what we do or what we fail to do. Uh, we will never again compromise our responsibilities. Um, every time we walk into mission control, we will know what we stand for. Competent means we will never take anything for granted. We will never be found short in our knowledge and in our skills. Mission control will be perfect. Oh, geez. I got yeah, yeah. chills. Well, you know, it, it's <laughs> funny because, you know, there's a, there's an interesting, you know, I'll come back to a sort of a Deming thing that, like, you know, a lot of times people will um, say, well, Deming said this. And then, you know, and 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 so you know, I think in um, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Kranz, right? It's really, I think of it as a play on words, right? Like he's not saying that like there is this deterministic button you can push that will guarantee that a failure will ever happen. What he's saying is you need to understand failure and be able to meet it head on because that's the, it's not an option. Like I'm not going to, (laughs) it's it's a Mike Roth or true North, right? I'm going to get there. And you know, um, there's a thing that I, I, I found like um, Deming was once asked about Japan and they, they you know, he responded to, to uh, somebody who was interviewing him. He said there was only one man with profound knowledge in Japan. And so, you know, the system of found knowledge. But and, you know, and, and if you look at it like, wow, that's pretty cocky, man. Like you like. But but Deming was very sort of he he chose his words really you know, like even to the point where like some people don't understand him, like he's like, you either understand me or you don't. I don't like, I don't, you know, I don't think he worried so much about the people <laughs> like he didn't suffer fools or, and, and as I dug into it, what he was saying was there was, there's this way you have to understand things. And it's, he called the system profound knowledge. And, and what he was saying, profound knowledge was, understanding system thinking, understanding psychology, understanding variation, and, and understanding knowledge, epistemology. And so I guess I'm making my point. Like if you sort of look at Dean Kranz's book in one way, you could say failure is not an option, like good luck, bud. Or you would say failure is not an option because like we know failure will happen and we are going to basically do everything we can. And, and when, when Deming is saying there was only one man with profound knowledge, in Japan, he's not saying, hey, I was the only guy that could figure this out. He was saying it more um, like um, sort of a verb, if you will, instead of a noun, right? Like, in <laughs> other words, like, like you had to understand, you know, systems thinking. You had to understand, you know, theory of variation, which is just the process of control. You had to understand the sort of psychology and then, you, you know, you like, you know, I think that, you know, going back to Steven Spears, um, you know, uh, HBR, and I guess that was his sort of thesis. One of my favorite quotes from that is, huh. Poeta was a community of scientists continually experiment. I mean, that's right. that's theory of knowledge, which is epistemology, which is 
PDSA. I mean, that's it. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I think that's the, uh, I think this is, that's a, such a great example of even th- there's a, there's a greater whole <laughs> that uh, you know, I, I'm hoping can simplify things yeah, right? Okay. Um, and, and show the, the provide a causal theory. Hey, just, just to go back to your night capital one, I, I'm, I'm having trouble dropping that in my head. So I, it, without playing the game of counterfactuals, I would just love to know uh, were there examples of pro- so uh, just going to this Krantz quote, were there examples of issues that couldn't get escalated to or resolved fast enough, right? That are not, uh, not trying to play the would have, could have, should have mm-hmm, game, but mm-hmm. are essentially the socio-technical circuitry showing the way, you know, kind of showing the weaknesses, right? I, I just wouldn't it be amazing to find I those stories. I, I, I totally agree. You know, I mean, John Osma has a really good article um, basically calling you know bullcrap on the sec via you know their their findings was um all counterfactual you know like counterfactual sort of mu- he didn't call it musical but he used some sort of fun terms of it <laughs> and I, I i i totally agree with him and part of his point was like it would have been better to know instead of just saying they didn't have a procedure for x it would have been really interesting to know sort of what were the dynamics of why that and to your point yeah. i think the, the the but you know that what if i understand is it's been very tight-lipped nobody you know very no you can't really find people that talk about it and, and even if they do know a little bit of it like they're sort of under sort of tight restrictions about what they can say but yeah i think it, there's like that to me is um it's such a concise, you know, the Boeing thing, like what I don't know, you know, I don't, like I just know sort of, I know less than you. And I, I just know what I sort of read at service level, but that's over years of sort of mistakes that sort of, and even the challenger and those things, but that capital was literally something that happened in 30 days. Literally yeah. the SEC said like, Hey, in fact, the CEO was sort of not really, he hadn't decided whether he wanted to use this type of, um, you know, latency arbitrage or sort of high frequency trading that lives in somebody else's sort of mm. exchange or service. And then literally um, he flip-flopped about the time the NYSC said, hey, we're going to have one. Hey, everybody, you got 30 days to do it. So, I mean, this is a, such a, like, this is like, there's a great, like, um, you know, sort of what would you call autopsy that like could be done here <laughs> because you get to see, the complexity of a sort of a, a, a critical system yeah. in, in, a, in a window that really happened in 30 days. Here's why I think it's so promising. So I was talking to our good mutual friend, Jeffrey Frederick, uh-huh. and uh, who you interviewed as well. And I was, I was describing the MIT beer game to him mm-hmm. uh, i asked him what do you think about the mit beer game he goes uh and uh, to my surprise i mean he's so uh i mean he's so much more well-read than me and yet he hadn't heard of it and so i quickly described you know what it was right you know simulation four players retailer uh distributor wholesaler and factory feedback cycle of uh you know uh four turns and he immediately said oh that will never work Right, uh, you're gonna get some sort of bullwhip effect. Um, that was like, right. how, how in the world did you surmise that? <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah. it's obvious. Yeah, one way communication, and what, um, and the only time you get reciprocal feedback is four turns later. He said, doomed to fail. Yeah. So I, I feel like what he demonstrated was that what socio technical maestros are able to do is see the structure, and kind of in their head simulate. <laughs> right? Uh, is this a one that's going to be very responsive or is this one that is hopeless? And I would claim that by looking at um, other uh, incidents, right. um, You know, with a, in a way that doesn't rely on counterfactuals, one can make a pretty good prediction of, you know, what truly, what the outcomes of a truly bad incident would be. Yeah, no, I think you can, I think you could sort of understand the pathology of an incident in a way um, without like just do it as a thought exercise, right? I think uh, you know I, I definitely think you can do that. Um, well, I mean, so the um, you know the I think the I just um, I wanted to explain in my Deming book the uh, the envelope game, 
right? Ah. Which is you know, you're sort of similar, but like there's a, there's a more, um, I found a, a better version of the one guy doing the envelope. You know, the envelope game is you can either use a single piece flow or you yeah. can use sort of a mass production, right? And, and the single piece flow is, is going to be in like, it, it doesn't seem like the, the original guy who did it, like said, did a, a follow on. He said like, he didn't say he got death threats, but he like people were really upset by by the outcome of single piece flow, not making sense of why it was so much more efficient. Huh. But there's a there's a better version of it where they take two teams of three. And then somebody tells them, hey, uh, they tell team like two, I want you to uh, create 10 envelopes. And they've got to do it in a mass production way. Like, so the first guy has to fold 10 envelopes, then passes it on to the second person who stuffs them in the envelope. And then the third person seals it. And, and, and the timing is when they get to 10, the other group is a single piece flow. And, and it, the end result is the single piece flow does like twice as many as the other team by the time they get to 10. But what happens are all these other things, which are, he throws in some um, sort of, sort of some turns and twists and turns where he says, okay, oh, by the way, <laughs> the paper we're using right. is not, you know, we, we've got to switch paper. Right. You know, and, and the bat the, the batch group like have to start all over. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and you know when you see those and you start uh, you know you start understanding you know the the how this um flow um sort of works. So those beer games, the envelope games, I think those are uh it, and so I know what I was trying to get to, which is I think one of the things you've done really well is try to create sort of lighthouse for us, right. In that, like the, the Dallas enterprise summit, obviously the Phoenix project was, was, um, was something that allowed us all to sort of circle around to see enterprise DevOps through the, that lens, the unicorn project, certainly. Um, I think at the end of the day, you have to simplify, you know I mean? Like to your first principle, like we have to, I think maybe that's what Deming was great at to a certain extent, which was he simplified Schuett's ideas. Um, you know, like the why does he get credit? Well, like he kind of explained it in a way. That, like, <laughs> I right. get it. That guy who wrote that book with all that math, <laughs> I didn't get it. You know, um, and I think it is the simplification of and if and if you you know I, I can't think of two better people sort of equipped to sort of to drive this. If you and Dr. Spear can sort of create us a, like the patterns in a more simplified way. You know, one of the things I love that you've done in your books too, is you, you, you know, like I didn't get it till I saw the unicorn project where you had your sort of, um, you know, that, what do you call them? Not the ways, but you had the, you know, the principles, oh, the five ideals, yeah, the yeah. ideals, right. And then you did the same thing. And that's a brilliant sort of thing. Like I can tell you a story, and, or I can tell you a story with like, here's what you should have got out of it. And, and so I think if you guys could do that, I, I guess the, the the other thing, I know I'm rambling and all and like sort of, but um, is like Amazon. You know, I think you, you, you guys, I know you're, you're probably going to cover a lot about Walmart just based on what I've seen from, uh, but I think, you know, Amazon's got to be the new Toyota. Like there'll be a point of which, you know, all the sort of discussions that we've had over the last 20, 30, 40 years related to sort of agile, lean software development, DevOps, like, like, we, we, like the sort of root is Toyota, Toyota Project Systems, of most of it. I, I, I got to believe there'll be a point in time in the future where Amazon will be that, you know, so like, you know, almost like we don't talk much about what Ford did, although like, him taking you know division of labor and like the things he did were like like ono could have never done what he did without him but we talk about toyota way more than we talk about ford you know i'm wondering if there's a time in the future and it will be and not wonder i know for a fact there'll be a time in the future where amazon will be the toyota yeah it's funny you mentioned that so uh, this is actually an area of deep study for us right now and this has actually been a theme of recurring conversation with uh, dr mckirsten and you know, because, okay, why? And this is actually helpful for me to try to uh, prove to myself that this is important. Yeah, so what we're saying is that structure is one of the top, is one of the few leading indicators of performance that we have. So just like Jeffrey uh, Frederick was able to sort of simulate in his head, right? right. You know, is this going to work or not? And, uh, you know, OKRs, right? Um, MBOs, right? And essentially those are trailing 
business measures, right? Those are trailing indicators. Okay. Uh, so if we if structure is the you know one of the most important tools and particular performance that we have, then it says that the job of the leader, you know, uh, where does structure come from? Uh, the leader is responsible for creating that, and and so it becomes. The, the, one of the most important things is like, what is the quality or the skills of that leader to be able to create good structure? And to your point, one of the best examples of that uh, is Amazon. And so the whole notion of two pizza teams, single threaded owners, right? I think those are uh, important, right? And, you know, to some degree, very new. And we're trying to better understand to what, in fact, I mean, one interpretation of the book working backwards is in the ideal, we would always have a single threaded owner who owns all of the different functional specialties in right. order to, uh, you know, create value, but, you know, not at a certain point you run out of those and then you have to have, you know, the three in the box, right. Where you have, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, product uh, dev and ops, um, you know, all living together. Right. And so maybe one uh, interpretation of that is, uh, if you don't, if you can't find these socio-technical maestros who can be singly responsible for, you know, all aspects of uh, creating a product, uh, then you have to split it between, you know, different people. So, you know, still, I think that's uh, an important aspect um, that's definitely relevant yeah, to every you know, organization. I, I, I told Spear, I, you know, like, so one of the things I've been threading on heavily, like one of the things I've been trying to figure out, what was Deming's influence to Amazon? And my linchpin is Jeff Wilkie. So I don't know if you've looked into Jeff Wilkie. He was basically considered the number two man at, at Amazon. He was brought in in 1999. And, um, and, and I, I don't know to the extent of what Bezos familiarity was with lean and lean principles. I, I suspect some, maybe a lot. You know, I know at some point the goal was one of his fa you know, favorite books. But Wilkie came in from MIT, the ORC stuff, operations management, statistical process control, theory of constraints. I mean, he came in and landed hard. And, you know, and, and his first tackle was the, uh, you know, sort of rethinking distribution centers to fulfillment centers. And I would make the argument that a lot of Amazon's success, you know, being this sort of Deming on the brain all the time, you know, sort of came um was sort of institutionalized by their adherence to understanding lean through an evolutionary scale model, unprecedented. And, and like that just becoming, um, and, and, you know, I'd like to think that like there was, you know, I can't find any direct like sort of like Wilkie or anybody or Bezos sort of quoting Deming, but I'd like to think they were aware of sort of Deming's ideas and, you know, certainly statistical process control and operations research. Anyway, so I, I think that, that Wilkie is an interesting story there, um, which is basically sort of, um, if it is, and I believe it is, then it confirms that, you know, that you get, you, you sort of get that, you only get that kind of scale with this kind of thinking, which circled all the way back. Just that time is not dead, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I would say, I, I don't think you can pull off what, Amazon achieve without these socio-technical maestros. I mean, I remember reading the book called The Everything Store, describing kind of what was required to actually run these fulfillment centers in the holidays in the early 2000s and how they would do things like uh, uh, for these very, uh, these runaway to hit toys, um, you know, they had to find, they couldn't, they had no tolerance for not being able to find these inventory items, right? And uh, you know, when they're convinced that uh, they didn't have any in the fulfillment center, they would go out and buy them in the retailer, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, uh, it, was just, it was just this incredible orchestrated effort to achieve a goal with you know incredible attention to detail, you know, grand understanding of the system. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I don't think they tolerated fools. Yeah, not at all, not at all. No, um, you know, thinking of working backwards, I, I did an interview with Doris Quinn, who spent her last two years with Dr. Deming. Uh, <laughs> I love and, that episode. Uh, yeah, and one of the things she said, which is every time she'd show up, meet him in the airport, um, she, the first thing they'd say on the plane is Dr. Deming would say, okay, what questions do you have for me, Doris? And if she didn't have anything, like, he'd be, he'd be mad, right? And uh, and in working backwards, they would describe that's exactly how Bezos was. Yeah. Bezos was like, if you flew with Bezos, you better come gunned with a bunch of sort of ideas and questions. And by the way, in the book, uh, The Everything Store, uh, Wilkie's name is mentioned uh, about yeah, no. 25 times. Yeah, no, so. totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, they don't mention him much in Working Backwards. But yeah, I mean, if you, you know, I've done the research and like there's, um, 
there's unquestionable. He was considered the number two guy for a long period of time. I mean, he was deeply involved in like, in, you could make the argument Amazon prime probably couldn't have happened. Okay. Without his, um, without the infrastructure that was evolved there. You know, again, he came in from a world they didn't know. Like he had <laughs> supply chain, he knew operations research. Anyway. So um, <laughs> I think that's an important point. This is actually for my benefit. Uh, a socio-technical maestro can be a maestro, even though they may not be the, the best expert on that domain. So, oh, yeah, yeah. No, so right. Admiral Hyman Rickover was not the best expert in nuclear reactors. However, he was okay, able to right, right, right. be the maestro for the, the socio-technical system. Well, that's the the other guy, the um, um, <laughs> right? David Marquette's uh, turn the ship ah. around, right? Like, there's a great example of... He didn't like the only way he was going to pass an inspection. He right. was not going to be able to understand that new sub. He was going to have to sort of do an intent model. So, yeah, that's right. That's, um, that's great. That's great. No, it's good stuff, Gene. You know, like we could do this for hours and hours. Of course, we can't, but uh, that's what it is. But I really appreciate you spending some time with me on this. And, um, you know, so hopefully get back to live uh, stuff so we can hang out. And I saw an old picture of me and you walking in the street at one time in portland <laughs> some guy came up to us with a copy of the phoenix project and he went to sign <laughs> it it was so weird it was so and it was it was early early days oh yeah and, and we took a picture of the two of us and you signing the book yeah it's like this is like really early days <laughs> i just saw that on like something popped up so that was kind of cool <laughs> um, all right my friend well, this has been great. And uh, by the way, uh, thank you for the uh, incredibly thought-provoking conversation. And uh, I'm hoping you and I will have more discussions, specifically about Net Capital, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Can, and like uh, again, if you guys want to sort of, uh, uh, you know, a fourth, uh, I guess, a fourth wheel on any of those discussions that you're trying <laughs> to do, I, you know, I, I, you know, like I said, I think the Wilkie stuff is could be explored. I think the Net Capital could be an interesting, um, you know, sort of way to understand. Yeah. The compact view of how everything go wrong in such a short period. So anyway. Right on, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, looking forward to seeing you soon in person. Uh, yeah. And so there'll be a big high five and hug, buddy. No kidding. All right, buddy. <laughs> uh, you take care. Hey, thank you. Bye-bye.